Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Professor of Sociology and Science Studies, Andrew Skull, on his book, Madness in Civilization: A Cultural History of Insanity, From the Bible to Freud, From the Madhouse to Modern Medicine. Andrew Skull is Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. He is the author of many books, including Masters of Bedlam, Madhouse, A Tragic Tale of Megalomania and Modern Medicine, and Madness... A very short introduction. And to keep that theme up, we're going to be talking about his latest book, which is Madness in Civilization: A Cultural History of Insanity, from the Bible to Freud and from the Madhouse to Modern Medicine. So, Andrew, first of all, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to do that. Madness is your thing, it's your stock in trade. This is the idea of madness and how it's portrayed in culture and medicine throughout the history of humanity. So why did you decide to embark on such a, such a foolhardy project? <laughs> yes, my publisher described it as uh, very ambitious and some people would describe it as a crazy enterprise in itself. <laughs> I've been working in this field for a very, very long time. I started working on what I call Museums of Madness, the Victorian asylum and where it came from and how it developed. Uh, And as the years went by, I moved forward into the 20th century and then back into the 18th century. And then when I started researching topics like hysteria, I went all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And of course, when one works in a field for a very long time, you read extensively, you work in a lot of different archives, you think hard about these issues, you talk with different audiences, you get a lot of feedback, you talk to professionals that work in the field, you talk to patients and ex-patients. And over time, if the subject stays interesting to you, as it certainly did to me, interests tend to broaden. Mm -hmm. You want to engage in in a larger way. I'd always thought that writing something like this would be a fascinating exercise. And it was an enormous amount of fun for me. Mm -hmm. I got to play at being a musicologist, a historian of art, a historian of religion, uh, as well as talking about medicine and, of course, talking about both patients' and families' reactions to mental illness and and literary representations Mm -hmm. of it, ranging from Elizabethan drama all the way down to Hollywood Mm -hmm. and everything in between. So it was a very capacious subject. It was something I published with... Thames and Hudson, I'd done a little earlier work with them and was enormously impressed with the visual presentations of the stuff that appeared. And I think that what 
some people would call illustrations in my book, are very much part of the argument. They're mm. part of getting to terms with this very amorphous and hard-to-define subject matter, uh, one which has at once fascinated and repelled people, mm-hmm. being a source of humor and a source of great sorrow and great anxiety. So much of that gets refracted in very interesting ways in uh, imagery that you can trace back as as far back as we can find Mm -hmm. um, people trying to represent things, and sometimes in very representational ways and sometimes in more abstracted ways. And, you know, if we talk later on about the 20th century, you can see in 20th century art some ways in which madness is refracted and sometimes we're talking about art produced about the insane and sometimes we're talking about art produced by the insane Mm -hmm. because there have been some very famous artists who either were mad once upon a time and then then recovered and painted or in other instances actually painted during the depths of their disturbance and thinking about that and what it shows you is, is, is I think a fascinating thing it's a subject when I started working on it back in the early 70s I thought I'd write a book about it and move on to other subjects. Mm -hmm. And instead, it became, in some sense, a lifelong obsession. I've written on other subjects, but over and over again, I've come back to this. And there have always been new things to do. And this is the most macroscopic view, in a sense, one could imagine doing. I mean, trying to talk about everything from the Jews of ancient Palestine all the way down to modern neuroscience Mm -hmm. and um, the latest squabbles about how to define mental illness in the 21st century is inevitably something that takes a view from 30,000 feet. On the other hand, other points in my work, and it's informed what I've done here, I've been concerned to do extremely microscopic work. So uh, about a dozen years ago, in collaboration with a friend and colleague, we came across what's arguably the first psychiatric casebook, in the, perhaps in the world, certainly in the English-speaking world, dating from uh, the 1760s. Mm-hmm. And, is this uh, Napier? No, this is no. actually John Monroe, who was the physician to Bedlam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Napier was an English divine, a, a priest, come astrologer, come doctor of sorts who acquired a reputation in the early 17th century as a specialist in madness among Mm. other things and so patients did come to him from a distance and he kept notes in hieroglyphics in in his own private uh, shorthand which another friend and uh, psychiatric historian Michael MacDonald somehow managed to decipher. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael, very sadly, is is dead now. But he wrote a wonderful book called Mystical Bedlam, which sort of unpacked this world where religion and astrology and spells and amulets and, to some degree, the medical remedies that had descended from the ancient Greeks were all mobilized to try and cope with the mad and the mopish and the depressed and so forth. Monroe was one of a long line of the family of Monroe who served as physicians to London's Bedlam beginning in 1728 and the last one was kicked out of his job in uh, 1853 and put in his own family's private madhouse Mm -hmm. because he'd gone off his rocker. So Monroe kept a little notebook for his own private use of his treatment of about 100 patients. And around that, we wove in the end two books which looked in detail at what it was like to treat the mad in 18th century London. Mm -hmm. And uh, that involved also trying to recapture through what was recorded in the casebook 
what patients' views of their own illness were, because those came through quite clearly, and what had brought them to the mad doctor. Mm. Why would you go in search? Sometimes it was the patient, him or herself. Other times it was the patient's relatives who brought the patient in. These were obviously ambulatory patients, although sometimes Monroe went to the household to see them. Sometimes they came to him. But uh, in many cases, really clearly quite disturb people so it's fascinating to so you know one can work at this at that very intimate scale where you're Mm. trying to recover the specifics of particular illness the particular treatments that were in place at at that time uh, what you can discover about the social location of mental illness Mm. or you can opt for a grander kind of narrative and obviously in my most recent book I've tried for the the most grand of narratives and, and that implies taking very large risks it also I think if it's going to be successful at all, and it's for other people to judge whether I've been successful here, has to be something that reflects really a lifetime of work. It's not the sort of thing you should attempt at the beginning. You can't read a half dozen books on the subject and and pricey and paraphrase them and get away with it. You know, you need a, a deeper engagement with the subject. How do you find over that time? So you say you've been writing about madness, the insane, mental illness from the 1970s to the present day. And those, you know, those first two terms I've just used there, although, the, you know, this book is called Madness and Civilization. Nowadays, they sort of stick on the tongue a bit. They're, they're sort of controversial terms. Yes. How have you seen that change over your career? I mean, obviously, you're writing mm. a history of the treatment of, of the mentally ill, which is basically a story of various different types of mistreatment over them over the years. And you're not, you know, you're, mm. you're obviously coming at it from a perspective that we live in a more enlightened world now. But do you find, that, you know, having to sort of tiptoe around the language you use nowadays? Do you, you find people... You do have to think very long and hard about language. And it's something I thought very deeply about before I used this title for the book. And in the very opening pages of the book, I, I actually talk about that choice and mm. why I made it and why I think talking about madness rather than mental illness yeah. is the appropriate thing to do. Linguistic shifts over time are, are often glacially slow, sometimes they're more rapid. Words come in and out of fashion. They acquire layers of meaning they didn't have to begin with. So in this world of talking about the institutional treatment of the mad, the first such places arose in the 18th century, by and large, a few earlier than that, and they were private profit-making business. It was often called in the 18th century and into the 19th, the trade in lunacy. So mm-hmm. there's another word that we would no longer use, yeah. at least unselfconsciously. And the physicians who treated them, or the medical men of one sort and another, it wasn't just physicians, it might be apothecary or surgeons were referred to and often called themselves mad doctors yeah so that was a term that later on came you know we often talk about shrinks and we make jokes mm. about the psychiatrist being as mad or madder than the patients that term sort of embodied that ambiguity now the reality is that not just the common folk Uh, not just sufferers themselves or their families, but those medical men who began to specialize in the treatment of mental illnesses used the term madness, used the term insanity, used the term lunacy all the way through the 19th century and Mm. quite unselfconsciously. So the British Parliament, on a number of occasions, inquired into the treatment of the mentally ill. So if you look uh, 1815-16, for example, there's a, 
a very lengthy inquiry that spans most of two years, is the Select Committee on Madhouses. Mm -hmm. In 1859, when they look at the laws surrounding the institutionalization of the mentally ill, it's a select committee on insanity and the Mm -hmm. pauper insane. The American Journal of Psychiatry, uh, as we now know it, until the 1920s, had the title the American Journal of Insanity. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, in its first three or four decades, it was printed at the Utica State Asylum in New York by the patients. So the mental patients were printing the words of the doctors studying (laughs) their condition. So it's very interesting because these days, over the last three, four, five decades, there's emerged first a bunch of critics like Foucault, like Thomas Sars, who wrote the the myth of mental illness, mm-hmm. R.D. Lang in this country, a so-called anti-psychiatry yeah. movement. And then that spread in many ways to the patients, or to some degree, many of the patients were already, because there's always been a long culture of complaint among patients, that they either weren't mad or that their madness was being mistreated. And one of the things the patients have done in some instances, and it's it's not a uniform thing by any means, is start talking about themselves as psychiatric survivors Mm -hmm. rather than psychiatric patients. And they often refer to what's wrong with them as madness. They've reclaimed that word. And that's another reason why I decided to use the term, because mental illness has throughout its history and still is subjected to stigma and to all kinds of social rejection. And I wanted to highlight that because on top of the misery that madness entails, misery very often for the mad person, him or herself, but certainly for those around them because of the disruptions that emotional and and mental turmoil causes, I wanted to highlight that Mm -hmm. aspect of things and make people think about it. And so sometimes if you verbally sort of slap somebody across the face, you bring attention to part of the very phenomenon you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that's So this choice was quite self-conscious to have used mental illness or to talk about a history of psychiatry, the English and the Americans, the British and the Americans, didn't embrace that terminology till the very early 20th century. It was invented in Germany in the early 19th century, but it was seen as a foreign word and Mm. one that they didn't want. So they called themselves alienists or asylum superintendents or medical psychologists. They had a variety of titles. The one thing they didn't call themselves was psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there really wasn't the organized specialty of medical personnel who think of themselves as expert in the treatment of mental disorders didn't come about to around the middle of the 19th century. So if we're talking, as I am, about the Roman period or the Middle Ages or even early modern London or or Europe, to speak of psychiatry is to use a language that's completely inappropriate historically. I'm Hannah Fry, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. As I described this book as, you know, a history of madness in civilization from you know, the, the yes. very beginnings of civilization, we're going to be taking very much a whistle-stop tour through it. We could record a series from this book. It's so absolutely packed with amazing stuff. Um, let's start with classical society. Mm. And... You've already mentioned this a couple of times, that one of the things you do throughout the book is look at the way that madness is portrayed in art throughout the ages. And one of the places that we can see very vividly the representation of 
madness in Greek culture is through Greek theatre, through Greek yes. tragedy. Greek theatre and, and also Greek sculpture sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes in paintings on craters, on vases, where scenes of Hercules run amok uh, and killing his children mm-hmm. are, are there for us to see. Of course, it's a recurrent theme in Greek drama and by extension in, in Roman plays, and much of the inspiration when revenge tragedy comes to the fore again in the Elizabethan age and through that into mm-hmm. Shakespeare and Jacobean period, there was a themes about madness that are being taken and reworked yeah. in, a, in a new context. So, yes, in the ancient world, that's the first place we see it in what originally was often oral traditions, oral mm-hmm. literature, and then as society becomes literate, becomes an important part of things. I mean, in Greek society, citizens at least, not the slaves, stopped everything for drama. They were mm-hmm. absorbed by the theatre, and very many of those dramas have scenes of violence and of madness and of disruption. They're a very, very central part of that argument. And of course, more broadly in Greek society, we can see a variety of different interpretations of madness that overlap and overlay and sometimes conflict. And that, I think, remains one of the features of madness as we come down through history, eventually naturalistic and particularly medical accounts of this condition come to predominate. But even now, there are alternative things around. And certainly when we look back in history, religious interpretations Mm -hmm. of madness, supernatural Mm -hmm. interpretations of it as a form of possession, treatments, temple medicine, for Mm -hmm. example, exist alongside what we come to think of as the Western medical tradition from the Hippocratic texts yeah. on down. And they're fluctuating fortunes between those different things, and they're not in any clear sense something we can mark one off from the other. So that if we move many centuries into the early modern period, into the medieval period, we can see divines laying claim to understanding madness and to some degree treating it. Much of the many pilgrims, sometimes mad people being dragged even very long distances from Cologne, for example, all the way to Canterbury. Mm-hmm. Um, in the famous set of stained glass windows in one of the, the chapels at, at Canterbury. We see a portrayal of a Mad Matilda, who's been brought because she's murdered her child and has been determined to be mad. So there are layers of meaning. The physicians try to stake out some of this territory. Obviously, Hippocrates, most notably with epilepsy, which overlaps with madness. There aren't hard and fast boundaries. And uh, and there's always been thought of all, as a divine yes, disease. as a divine disease. And he talks about the sacred disease, and he mm. says it doesn't have sacred origin. It has a natural origin in the brain. So the kind of, how to put it, the temptation to root madness in the body has a very, very long history. But at the same time, the Greeks very often spoke of madness as something brought on by torment, by Mm -hmm. tragedy, by loss, by uh, trauma of one sort or another, which implies, of course, a very different kind of ideology and perhaps a different kind of treatment of the disorder. So it's a very multivocal kind of thing and teasing out these different strands, how they interacted or didn't interact, competed or didn't compete. When we move into that medieval period, physicians concede that some forms of madness are indeed possession Mm. or divine origin. What they try to do is separate out a subset of these conditions 
which are rooted more in the humors or in the body mm-hmm. and therefore are amenable to their skills. So for a time, there's a coexistence, subsequently sometimes a conflict between these different views of madness. You talk about a point in history where there becomes a conflict, which I guess really is the start of the mm. scientists or the natural philosophers as they, yes. as they were then getting the upper hand, which is the point where you know we're in the sort of the late Middle Ages, a time of witchcraft and supposed possessions and things. And you describe that sort of battle between the people who look at this from a religious perspective and the natural philosophers, almost as, like, during the Reformation, like almost like a religious propaganda. Yes, and even more complicated than that. As these tendencies arise, there's sometimes the naturalistic interpretations are used as a weapon by some branches of Christian belief mm-hmm. against others. So, um, particularly in, in England, after this, the English Civil War, the perils of enthusiastic religion and of carrying religious enthusiasm too far and of exorcisms and prayers and so on. Well, religion's just turned the world upside down. Mm-hmm. It's literally cost the state its head. <laughs> it's been separated from the mm-hmm. body. It's instituted a period that at least the opponents of the Puritan Revolution see as anarchy unleashed. And so when the Restoration occurs and Charles is brought back, after that, religious enthusiasm is viewed by the English upper classes as um, distinctly suspect. They Mm -hmm. want a much more rational, placid, calm kind of Christianity, a a god who's a clockmaker and who Mm. winds the clock up and turns it on and sits back and watches his handiwork, doesn't intervene to drive people mad or to possess them or to curse them or whatever. And you can see that even earlier in Elizabethan times. There's a very famous case of a, a young girl who delivers a message to the house of an old crone in the village mm. and the old crone decides she's insulted her in some previous time, locks the door and starts hurling insults and spells against her. That, you know, you're going to die before my daughter and you, your bones are going to rot. And the distraught teenager flees the house and then has fits and mm. falls into hysterical paralysis, as we likely would think of them. Well, And they say that sounds... The description, the physical description of her bending her back... Yes, she arcs back just yeah. like the, <laughs> the hysterics that were seen in Paris by Charcot. Mm. So you, you do have that kind of thing. But there's then competing interpretations. Her family of Puritans, they all interpret this as possession, and they pray over her to drive out the possession. Edward Jordan, who's a London physician, is induced to write a description of this in naturalistic terms as, as illness. But it turns out he was put up to it by an Anglican bishop mm. who wants to squash the Puritans. So the neat kind of ways in which we draw the lines between natural philosophy and religion or religion and science are very blurry for much of the time. And again, when we get into the 18th century, we get the religious revivals of, uh, led by the Methodists, for example, by Wesley and the Whitbread. And those mass public preaching sessions are seen by many people as inciting madness, as mm-hmm. bringing it on. Wesley thinks he's getting sinners to repent and driving the devil out, uh, his opponents see this as either a way of extracting money from these poor souls or as provoking the very things he claims he's curing. And oddly enough, Wesley Whitfield, on occasion, preached in Moorfields 
right in front of Bethlehem Hospital on one side and St. Luke's Asylum for the Mad on the other. And, and of course, satirists like Hogarth had a field day with that. And so it's another way in which we see madness entering the world of art. Most famously, when Hogarth portrays the last panel of his Rake's Progress mm-hmm. series, and Tom Rakewell ends up mad in Bedlam, naked, chained, being bled, all kinds of strange creatures who are obviously mad all around him, and a couple of fashionable ladies who might either be aristocratic visitors or perhaps prostitutes trolling for custom because Bedlam was notoriously mm-hmm. a place where prostitutes roamed looking for Johns. There you have it. So, tremendous interaction between the world of the mad and the sane. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Andrew Skull and we're talking about his book Madness in Civilization: A Cultural History of Insanity. Andrew, in this part I want to concentrate on the Enlightenment, the Victorian period. But before we do, I mean more generally, we've just left a period of history where madness is seen as the touch of God, as a divine thing. And once we get to the Enlightenment, the natural philosophers and the scientists start to look at it from a more rational perspective. But that would be a simplification because we start to see people who are mad as degenerate rather than touched by God. Yes. Well, it's even a bit more... I mean, one can always complicate things. But if you look even as one of the things that emerges in the latter half of the 17th century in Oxford is Thomas Willis, who's the professor of medicine... Mm -hmm starts to dissect brains or have his assistant dissect mm-hmm. them and, and to examine them and coins the term neurology, begins to see the nervous system and the brain as an important new mm-hmm. source of the regulation of the body and a source of mental disturbance. Mm-hmm. And that gets picked up in uh, the 18th century and what we think of as the age of reason or the age of the enlightenment. And the doctrine of the nerves becomes a very important part of our story and a source of new patients, really, for the emerging group of mad doctors, as they're called then, who are beginning to specialize in nervous and mental disorders. Uh, And George Cheney uh, transplanted Scott. Scotland has exported a lot of people over its history. Uh, And this George moves just before the Act of Union in 1707 down to London, starts out as a regular physician trying to develop a clientele, sits in coffee houses, because that's one of the ways you meet the sorts of patients you might need, eating and drinking. Well, he eats and drinks rather too much. He ends up about 450 pounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, He can barely walk. Uh, So he sets up as a diet doctor, which seems a little bizarre. And then a little while later, picking up on the doctrine of nerves and on the fact that foreigners are poking fun at the English as a particularly melancholic race, Mm -hmm. writes a book called The English Malady, in which he turns that reproach on its head and says, 
You know, the reason the English are more prone to nervous disorders is because we're the richest and most civilized of countries. And as you become more civilized and richer, life becomes more artificial, stress rises, you become more sedentary, uh, your nervous system becomes more refined and therefore more liable to break down. Oh, and we still believe that now. Yes, I mean, that notion of... We, we look back on the 18th century as this pastoral idol of, <laughs> you know, when life was calm and slow. Uh, they were already seeing it as, you know, a time when all this tea and coffee's entering and stimulating people. <laughs> and for them, it was a world of novelty, of stress, of ambition, of people on the rise. And indeed, that was happening for for at least a chunk of the population. And Cheney's great conceit was to both flatter the English that the reason they were so often mad was because of their superiority, but also to say that madness socially was going to be found at the very highest reaches of society, not the lowest. The peasant who still toiled in the field mm-hmm. had a rude and, and kind of crude um, metabolism and nervous system. So the notion of madness as degeneracy is the not the product of civilization, but almost the reverse of it, of evolution running running reverse, as it were, really comes about in the second half of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And it comes actually in part as in the aftermath of the building of the large asylums, which were a quite utopian project in their earliest stages. When the state, when counties were persuaded, when the central government persuaded to force counties to build these institutions, the idea was they were going to be curative, that they operated along a set of principles generally known at the time as moral treatment. They removed the mad person from the environment that had driven her or him mad, put them in a a retreat or an asylum in the old-fashioned meaning of that word, something that removed you from the pressures of everyday Mm -hmm. life, allowed you to recover your mental strength and then, then go forth. And psychiatrists, a bit of an anachronistic term, alienists, as they would more likely have been called in those days, saw the asylum as a machine to remanufacture sane citizens and were very confident about what they could do. And they talked about being able to cure 60 or 70 or 80 percent of their patients if they came in early enough. Well, in reality, they couldn't do that. And so what happened over time, it wasn't that asylums were entirely static. Some patients who came in each year left within six months to a year. But if they didn't, if they didn't make it out in that first year or 18 months, they tended to become long-stay chronic Mm -hmm. patients. And over time, the chronic patients formed a larger and larger whole of the population of the asylum. They came to embody its image in the minds of the public. The public saw them as places warehouses for unwanted people, really, and places where I called them at one point cemeteries for the still breathing, you know, sort of places that people were still above ground, but they were morally dead, legally dead. They didn't have any more rights. And as the profession confronted that inability to deliver on its promises, in some senses, the doctrine of degeneracy was a way of explaining away their failures and making it a good thing. Mm. Look, folks, if we release these people... They're, in fact, biologically inferior. They lack the moral restraint that more civilized people Mm -hmm. have. So they're going to breed like the proverbial rabbits, and they're going to produce more and more mad men and women as the time goes on. So there's a prophylactic aspect to the asylum. It allows us to put patients away, prevent them breeding, 
and eventually short circuit the problem of madness. Now, that feeds into a narrative of eugenics. Yeah. Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, one of many proponents of that. It attracts the great and the good. H.G. Mm-hmm. Um, Wells, George Bernard Shaw, a whole host of intellectuals. Winston Churchill, I don't know if he counts as the great and the good at that period in his life, but still. And fortunately, in democratic societies and in societies where you have a pluralistic approach and you have religions who are religious people who for example who are very much opposed to the logical implication of eugenics mm-hmm. it goes only so far locking up in america involuntarily sterilizing people to a surprising degree but the logic of that position is what happens in nazi germany where those restraints disappear and the nazis refer to the mentally ill as degenerates and as useless eaters, mm-hmm. people who simply consume resources, are pollution to the purity of the race, something the Nazis were only too keen to talk about. And so they initially borrow from California, the state I usually reside in these days, the idea of compulsory sterilization. Mm-hmm. They take it to a much greater extreme because they don't have any checks and balances at all, of course. And then they embark on a secret program called T4 after the, the house on Terenstrasse in, in Berlin Uh, which ironically was confiscated from a Jewish family, they start exterminating the mentally ill and exterminate 150, 200,000 patients. And appallingly, the final solution actually gets its start there. They start by injecting poisons into these patients by shooting them and then develop the technology of the gas chamber. And even the personnel as well as the equipment are later transported east to the death camps for the the victims of the Holocaust. So the mentally ill, that whole language, and if you read what British psychiatrists are saying about Mm -hmm. the mentally ill in the late 19th century, it's full of the most appalling cruelties and stereotypes. So one British psychiatrist who practiced at Northampton uh, Hospital, for example, says every year thousands of children are born with pedigrees that were they puppies would lead them to the horse pond. In other words, we'd tie them up in a sack, put in a lead weight, and throw them in the pond and drown them. So they understand where this should all go, but luckily for us and for those poor souls, that logic doesn't get applied here. In Germany in the 20th century, it does. I'm Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I knew, obviously, when I mentioned the idea of degeneracy, that the inevitable endpoint of that was going to be with the Nazis. But I had something else in mind. The thing that came to England, particularly in the 15th century, and ended up filling the madhouses, which was syphilis. Yes. Yes, now that's fascinating. I mean, syphilis seems... There's a bit of controversy around it, but the, the latest physical anthropology evidence seems fairly definitive about this, that syphilis was one of the things Columbus and his crew brought back Mm. from the New World. Uh, We took many of our diseases to which we had acquired a certain degree of immunity over there, and it's one of the things that caused the mass extermination of the native populations in, in the Americas. But in return, we got syphilis. And syphilis, very early on, what Dura's first surviving woodcut is of a syphilitic soldier in uniform. And the soldier is an important part of that because armies of mercenaries spread the disease all through Europe. And 
nobody wanted to own that disease. The French were laying siege to Naples at the time there was a, the first big outbreak, and they called it the Neapolitan disease. The Neapolitans said, no, it was the French disease. Still another group said, no, it was the Spanish disease. And the Portuguese said, no, it was actually the Castilian disease. And the Turks said, oh, it's the Christian disease, because it was all of them. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Syphilis obviously had horrific physical effects, but as a disease, it's like some others. I hesitate to mention chickenpox in the same breath, but chickenpox, if you have it, goes underground and can surface later on in life yeah. in a different form, as you know. And syphilis, the same thing. Primary infection... The sores, the pox, the various um, the swellings of the limb, the fever. But then it went underground. And people often thought they'd been cured by some quackish remedy. Mm-hmm. In fact, the disease was still there. And over time, it would attack various vital organs, sometimes the heart, sometimes other, other organs, but very frequently the brain and the central nervous system. Now, that wasn't realized at the time. and so. But one of the interesting stories in psychiatry is... Psychiatry's diagnostic abilities are pretty shaky, mm-hmm. even today. But in the 1820s, in France, a French physician observed the early symptoms of what was then known as general paralysis mm-hmm. of the insane, or he named it general paralysis. And um, as that name implies, as the disease unfolded, you gradually became paralyzed. You first had disturbances of gait, disturbances very often of articulation, your pupils started to react unequally to light. That was often known as prostitute's eye, which might have given them a clue about what was going on. But it was also seen as possibly the end state of all madness, this general paralysis. Mm-hmm. And eventually you died a horrible death. You were confined to bed. You developed bed sores. Usually you choked to death because your throat muscles became paralyzed and, and you choked on food and, and you died. So it was a horrible, horrible disorder. Its origins were very unclear. Increasingly as the century wore on, 
suspicion grew that there was some connection to syphilis. And in the early 20th century, that suspicion was confirmed. In, in 1913, Japanese physician Noguchi and, and his collaborator Moore found the corkscrew-shaped organism which causes syphilis in the brains of syphilitics, mm -hmm. so, of tertiary syphilitics. So now we knew that was a form of madness that unambiguously had a biological root. We didn't have a cure for it, but we knew it. Now, just a few years later, a Viennese professor of psychiatry, Julius Wagner von Diarreg, who later became a Nazi, had been for a long time speculating that fever might cure madness. And he came across an Italian prisoner of war who had malaria. And malaria in those days was still endemic in parts of Italy, uh, in the Po Valley, for example, in the marshes around Rome. So... He took blood from this malarial patient and injected it into a syphilitic patient, created a high fever or a series of high fevers, which he terminated with quinine, and proclaimed that this cured them. I'm agnostic about whether it worked. There was a lot of testimony at the time from not just von Jarek, but a variety of physicians, that it did. But after all, for s several millennia, we thought bloodletting worked. Mm. And tertiary syphilis had a, a remitting path in many patients. So a little hard to know. And there was never any controlled trial. And by the time we might have done that, and controlled trials emerged in medicine, mostly post-World War II around streptomycin mm -hmm. and the cure of, of tuberculosis. So we didn't do that. It was just, I gave them a fever and they got better mm. kind of argument. Before that might have been subjected to test, we discovered penicillin. Yeah. And penicillin was a real magic bullet, not just for syphilis, but all sorts mm -hmm. of other bacterial infections. So that works without any shadow of a doubt, unless you get a drug-resistant form of the disease. But that was a big chunk of the asylum population. Perhaps as many as 20% of the men and 5 or 6% of the women who entered the asylums each year were really suffering from this condition. So it, it, it is an important part of the story. And of course, along with the neurological damage it was doing, it did produce very hard to ignore psychiatric symptoms. These were the sorts of people who proclaimed themselves Jesus Christ or Napoleon or the, ironically, the Virgin Mary, but really were suffering from mm. the effects of the infection of their brains. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Andrew Skull about his book Madness in Civilization. I've written down nerves and nervousness. I wanted to talk about that uh, polite description. Yes. But actually we haven't talked about hysteria yet either so let's talk about the idea that in the past the treatment of mental illness, madness is something, the burden has fallen heavily on women. It's something that's been mm. often seen as a disease that particularly afflicts women. There's this amazing idea that the womb would travel around the body. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So let's talk about this. I mean, I wanted to get us really to um, the, the fantastic figure of Franz Anton Mesmer. 
yeah. at some point. But let's just talk Honestly, about this idea that yeah. women are more affected by madness than mm. men, or the mm. historical idea that we thought they were. Yes, well, you know, one of the interesting things about writings on the history of psychiatry was until the women's movement came along, gender really wasn't mentioned by mm. historians. I include myself in that because my earliest work didn't make a big fuss about that. Particularly someone like my friend Elaine Showalter came yeah. along and wrote a book called The Female Malady yeah. and spoke about hysteria but also other kinds of madness as predominantly female. In some ways, I understand where that impulse comes from. Statistically speaking, it's not clear it's so. But the identification of men with rationality and females with emotionality and irrationality is a trope that has a long history in the culture. The witch craze wasn't solely directed at women, but they very largely were its victims. Hysteria, by the very term, of course, comes from the Greek word for womb, and as you indicated a minute ago, for a substantial chunk of medical history, the womb was talked about as though it could wander around causing mischief in the body of the body of women. Uh, it's why we often, they talked about the globus hystericus or the choking sensation in the mouth. Well, the, the womb had moved up and squeezed the lungs up and, and was causing this choking mm-hmm. sensation. Well, subsequently, as knowledge of human anatomy evolves beyond the fanciful notions of the ancient Greeks and of Galen, we realized increasingly that wasn't, wasn't a feasible kind of thing. But it was replaced in the 19th century by a notion that the womb and the brain were linked via the nerves. Mm. And even earlier than that, if we think about the long 18th century, it's interesting in the Austrian or the Habsburg Empire and in southern Germany, there was a priest named Gassner who began exercising patients and driving out the devil. So in the age of reason, which we take as the moment when all that superstition is gone, Mm. just as we got Wesley doing his thing in England, Gassner in a Catholic part of Europe is invoking the old exorcist visions. That becomes very disturbing because people travel from all over to get this treatment, sort of like to Lourdes. People on the roads are a potential source of disturbance. All this rousing of popular uh, enthusiasm is seen by the authorities as dangerous. Who knows where it may turn next? So eventually, the Empress of Austria and the Pope get together and send Gassner off to be a parish priest in some isolated little parish where he can do no more harm and tell him no more exorcisms. Meantime, in Vienna, a rather wealthy Viennese physician named Franz Anton Mesmer has derived an initial fortune from marrying very well. And he's got a palace, really, of a, a home to which people like Haydn and Mozart, both father and son, come. Uh, One of Mozart's first operas is written and first performed in Mesmer's Gardens. He is a physician to the wealthy. And embracing this doctrine of the nerves and of invisible forces in the universe, he turns not to the idea of devils and spirits, but to another kind of invisible force. So obviously Newton and Newton's work on gravity has become one example of a force we can't see, but we can see its effects. So too with electricity and magnetism, for example, which have increasingly come to be things the natural philosophers are studying. And Mesmer claims to have found another natural invisible force, namely animal magnetism, something that wanders around our bodies or rushes around our bodies, and if it's blocked, causes various kinds of illness. And he also claims that via 
his gaze or by inducing a trance or by roving his hands over the body or not quite touching the body, he can manipulate this fluid and get it to go around the blockages. And he attracts quite a crowd of patients in Vienna. He's very well connected. One of the patients is a blind young pianist from a very rich family, somebody for whom Mozart allegedly wrote one of his piano concertos. But she's mostly famous as a blind musician, Mm -hmm. and he treats her, and she recovers her sight. But when she recovers her sight, she loses her favor with the empress. There are lots of talented Mm -hmm. pianists. And moreover, Mesmer's enemies circulate rumors that he has seduced her as part of the treatment. The connections of mesmerism and sexual vulnerability are recurrent. Yeah, very much so. That's where I wanted to go, really. Yes, and they really are, because, you know, you've got, you're putting these, Patients into a trance, these mm. women, you're passing your hands over the various regions of their bodies. They're being carted off to a recovery room, which is padded and lined with mattresses so they can't harm themselves. Well, what else is going on behind that closed door? Mm-hmm. So Mesmer actually is forced to flee Vienna, and he moves from Vienna to Paris and restarts his practice attracts many French aristocratic ladies and to some degree their male counterparts and even some of the poor and he develops his treatments further so he fills tubs with iron filings and iron rods protrude from them you can attach to the bits of your body that are ailing and those concentrate these mesmeric forces He's meantime explained Gasner's uh, success with exorcism as that he inadvertently was provoking the magnetism yeah. in the body. So he's found a way to explain away that in naturalistic terms. And as you can see, animal magnetism might have existed. It had this, could have had the same status as um, uh, gravity or magnetism or electricity. In fact, it didn't. And Mesmer's rivals eventually persuaded the French king to set up a very famous commission one of whose members was Benjamin Franklin, who was then the American ambassador to Paris, to investigate Mesmer's claims. Now, rather curiously, they did two things. They didn't actually observe Mesmer practicing. They observed one of his disaffected pupils. That was a source of some anger on Mesmer's part. They also didn't address the question of whether it worked. What they asked themselves was, was there such a thing as a magnetic fluid? And through a variety of ingenious experiments, and they were quite clever about this, they said, no, it didn't. So thereby trying to discredit the whole thing. And indeed, eventually that report, it certainly prevented Mesmer getting the kind of official recognition he wanted. Shortly thereafter, a certain blind pianist from Vienna shows up to play concerts in Paris, and Mesmer flees. He leaves first for Lyon with the excuse he's going to demonstrate mesmerism for the brother of the the king of Prussia. And that demonstration goes badly awry, fails massively. At which point, Mesmer departs France altogether, lives another two decades, but basically in obscurity. He's lost his thing. Mesmerism sort of persists as a fairground thing, as an underground thing, as something that the chattering classes are interested in. So Dickens, for example, is very interested in mesmerism. In a modern novel, uh, Peter Carey's Jack Maggs, which is a retelling of of the Great Expectation story from mm-hmm. Magwitch's point of view. Dickens is portrayed as this mesmeric figure. Wilkie Collins, who's Dickens' great friend, incorporates mesmerism in his novels. But it's become very deeply 
unrespectable. And it revives, when it does revive, under a new name, via a Scottish surgeon, James Baird, who calls it hypnotism, doesn't talk about magnetic fluids, Mm -hmm. and mainly achieves a new respectability when it's taken up by the doyen of late 19th century neurology, Jean-Martin Charcot in Paris, Mm -hmm. who uses it as a therapeutic modality on hysterical patients from the Salpetriere, from the the Hospital for Women, Mm -hmm. where he has a a neurological and psychiatric, really more a neurological service. And Charcot, who's identified many of the modern neurological diseases, thinks of hysteria as simply another neurological disease. He's convinced it has physical roots. Mm -hmm. It's rooted in the brain. Hysteria works on these people because they have this defective nervous system, and only defective people can be hypnotized, Mm -hmm. he thinks. Later experiments tend to show that's not true. Now, that has an interesting connection in its turn to a different therapeutic approach to mental illness and a different understanding of the roots of mental illness that emerged via a rather a failing Viennese physician who comes to Paris as a desperate last throw of the dice in hopes of, of avoiding the worst fate in the world, which is being exiled to North America, to the United States. And that's Sigmund Freud. And Freud arrives in Paris and studies at Charcot's feet almost literally. Even though Freud's French is pretty dismal, he translates the great man into German, thus earning his gratitude. You could never flatter Charcot enough. Mm-hmm. And if you crossed him, you were dead. I mean, professionally at least, you were dead. He would kill your career. But Freud becomes, in a way, a favorite. Charcot gives him a famous postcard of himself. He liked to refer to himself as the Napoleon of the neuroses. And if you (laughs) see this picture, he's adopting a Napoleonic pose with his arm crossed across his chest and inside his jacket, looking a bit like Napoleon. Anyway, Freud goes back to Vienna and initially tries hypnotism on hysterical patients with his senior friend, Joseph Breuer, and the two of them then write studies on hysteria. But interestingly, Breuer has plenty of patients, doesn't need hysterics, doesn't like working with them, drops them. They end up in Freud's lap, so to speak. And Freud, who's never been, who's always a rather clumsy hypnotist, comes to believe that hypnotism is a short circuit and doesn't really solve the problem. So hypnotism eventually gets dropped and the talk therapy, free association on the couch, begins to emerge. And from that, we get psychoanalysis in, in the form that we would recognize it. I'm Rosa rankin G, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We've talked a lot about the, the legacy of the eugenicists and, and the Nazis, obviously. And again, we like to think that those ideas died with the Nazis. But as you mentioned, the idea of sterilisation was happening in America. Mm. It was happening in Sweden, of all places, still, yes. you know, relatively recently. And all through the 20th century, again, in the West, there was things like ECT and quite brutal treatment of patients. Mm. There's an incredible photograph of a hospital in Philadelphia in the book of of a ward where, you know, all the men are naked. Yes. And so you've mentioned this idea of the anti-psychiatry movement that that arises in the 50s and 60s, I guess. Let's talk about the people who rose up and fought against the the practices that were going on in the psychiatric Mm. world. Well... One of the things that happened once people were involuntarily hospitalised, and for most of the history of the mental hospital, the great majority of patients who were there were there against their own will, Mm -hmm. 
or if they could exercise any will. And it turned out that made them uniquely vulnerable. They were seen as patients with a desperate disease which demanded desperate remedies. And so when we look at the 20s and 30s and 40s, we see a number of these things being visited on patients. You mentioned ECT. Oddly enough, that's the only remedy from this period. And it was a purely empirical remedy. I'll talk a little bit about where it came from. But uh, it's the only one that survives into the present. And it's still used. Some psychiatrists and patients swear at it. And some psychiatrists and patients swear by it and claim it, it rescues them from misery. But it's the only one of those therapies that survives. If you look at things like, well, somebody I studied in an earlier book called Madhouse, Henry Cotton decides, based in part on the fact that syphilis causes is an infectious cause of some kind of madness, that the rest of madness is caused by hidden infection. Mm-hmm. And since it's pre-antibiotics... He thinks you have to engage in what he calls surgical bacteriology, which means to go in and whip out all the diseased bits. Well, that's teeth, that's tonsils. And when you don't get better, it's not that the theory is wrong. You swallowed the bacteria, so we've got to reach into the gut and take out stomachs and spleens and colons and kill in the process hundreds of patients and maim thousands and not be stopped, even when he confesses in print that he's killing up to a third of his patients. It's bizarre. Uh, Beyond that, in the 30s, we get putting people into comas with insulin, shocking them with metrazole, which produces tremendous convulsions and fractures of the back and of the hip. And you get lobotomy, which by the late 1940s is being performed sometimes by driving an ice pick through the orbit of the eye into the brain. So these are are pretty grim kinds Mm -hmm. of things. Lobotomy wins a Nobel Prize for its inventor in 1949, so... It's very respectable medicine then, and within 10 years, it's something psychiatry wishes to forget and consign to oblivion. Nonetheless, mental hospitals by the end of World War II are in a particularly parlous state. Most of their trained personnel have been hived off for the war effort. Patients have been starved of resources and, and often quite literally starved. Death rates rise dramatically during that period. Their exposés after the war, particularly in America, one of the things America does to conscientious objectors who won't serve in the army is it punishes them by making them mental hospital attendants. Mm-hmm. But, of course, so you have these refined people who ordinarily would not have set foot in a mental hospital as a staff member at least, suddenly exposed to the horrors. And the picture you talked about was surreptitiously taken by a Quaker conscientious objector. Uh, It's very striking. It's one of a number of very striking images he smuggled out of the madhouse. That first generation, though, there were plenty of journalistic critics, some of whom had visited the death camps in Germany and then went back and saw conditions in the mental hospitals and made the analogy between the death camps and the mental hospitals. But that group of primarily journalistic critiques was aimed at getting more money out of the politicians so we could do more lobotomies, more ECT, more insulin coma therapy, because that was what modern medicine was about. What happened in the 1950s is... I guess my home discipline, I'm more of a historian these days than not, but sociologists began to study the mental hospital, initially in collaboration with psychiatrists, later on on their own. And as they did it on their own, 
So the tone of their critiques of the hospital became increasingly hostile. Increasingly, they came to believe the hospital was the problem, not the illness. Mm -hmm. Most famously in the work of Irving Goffman, who was a colleague of mine for a few years at University of Pennsylvania. Goffman wrote a book that appeared in 1961 called Asylums, Essays on the Social Situation of Mental Patients and Other Inmates. And he explicitly made the analogy between a mental hospital and a bunch of things, nunneries, boarding schools, those seem fairly innocuous, boot camp for the army, but also prisons and most especially concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Now that's an analogy the psychiatrists didn't like. Simultaneously, from a very different angle, a Hungarian refugee psychoanalyst named Thomas Saz was running around, increasingly disenchanted with his profession. Saz was a well, he thought of himself as a libertarian. He was a 19th century liberal, you might think, but in modern terms, a pretty reactionary figure mm. who was anti-anything that had anything to do with the government and anything to do with coercion and wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, treating mental illness as a game the patients were playing. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't excuse their actions. We shouldn't hospitalize them. We shouldn't compel them to enter therapy. If they did bad things, we should punish them. And Saz was very consistent in his views. About the same time on this side of the Atlantic, you had this rather strange figure who became something of a guru mm. in the 60s of Ronald Lang, or Ronnie Lang, who trained in Glasgow, trained as an analyst, came from a weird family background, became convinced families were the source of mental pathology, mm -hmm. and proceeded to demonstrate it by treating his own family and children so appallingly that one committed suicide and others were driven quite balmy. Lang, from a very different point of view, because he was, saw himself as Marxist, the opposite of Saz, tended to be lumped in with him, along with figures like David Cooper, who'd come mm -hmm. from South Africa. And all of them started to criticize mainstream psychiatry as oppression and to attack things like lobotomies and even ECT as signs of that oppression. And in the atmosphere of the late 60s, of greater freedom as people saw it, but also of intense opposition to Viet the Vietnam War and to expertise and authority which were mobilized in support of the war and, and uh, in ways that people were repelled by. Psychiatry got kind of bound up in that, mm. seen as an agent of social control, part of the state, a repressive thing. There'd been a lot of criticism in those years and quite justified criticism that the Soviets were imprisoning dissidents in mental hospitals and filling them with psychotropic drugs mm. uh, and treating their political objections as signs of their mental illness. Well, in the West, the critics of psychiatry extended that and said, you accuse the Soviets, but you're just as bad. And so that criticism emerged and somewhat after that, lawyers started to get in the act in the United States, so there were lawsuits about the right to treatment, and then lawsuits about the right to refuse treatment. And out of that, you got a patient movement, very often that adopted this anti-psychiatric viewpoint, and they started referring to themselves as mad, or as consumer survivors, or psychiatric survivors, people who'd survived this oppression, not who'd been treated by a profession devoted to providing therapy and cure, but oppressed by them. For psychiatrists, this was, I think, a dreadful moment. It was a time, they've always tended to be tarred with some of the stigma of the mental patient themselves, but this was an era where they saw as anti-science was being used to pour scorn on, on their credentials 
And the problem was their credentials were pretty weak. Their ability, for example, to reliably diagnose a patient was increasingly coming into question. Drugs had entered the picture. Drug companies wanted to test their drugs, and they increasingly needed to test them on larger and larger groups of patients, often in different sites. So that meant it was very important you had a homogenous group of patients. If you were testing in London and New York on schizophrenic patients, you needed to be sure you were looking at the same kinds of patients. But when uh, John Cooper and his associates studied diagnosis in New York and London, what they found was three times as much schizophrenia in New York as in London, and three times as much manic depressive illness in London as New York. And clearly what was happening, and you could see that even when you presented the same cases, was that one group of psychiatrists was diagnosing one way and another another. Well, let's say we had patients with pneumonia and TB, and you were likely to get diagnosed with TB if you were in America, but pneumonia if you were in London. We'd all regard that as a as an indictment of the capacity of the physician. So there was a real crisis. And somewhat out of that, somewhat out of the need for drug treatment, somewhat out of a rebellion on the part of some American psychiatrists against the hegemony that had emerged after World War II of psychoanalysis in America, there was a move back to biology. And there was a task force set up to systematize diagnosis and make it reliable so that if psychiatrists A were confronted by a patient and then psychiatrist B, they'd agree on what was wrong. Mm. It was very embarrassing not to have that. So that's really where that task force came from. It published its findings in 1980. It was the third edition of what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual at the American yeah. Psychiatric Association, a very long-winded. So we usually refer to it simply as DSM. Yeah. And, and there's DSM 3, 4, 5 now. 5 was published two years ago in the midst of enormous controversy all over again. Because when the guys started that revision, they wanted to base it on the causation of different mental diseases, but they found they couldn't do it. Mm. So they went back to the same system of using symptoms, observable things of an interior problem, and that didn't work so well either. And so when they produced it, a couple of weeks before it appeared... The director of the National Institute of Mental Health, or NIMH, went to the New York Times and denounced it and said, we're not going to use this system anymore for mm -hmm. funding research. People think there's something called schizophrenia. People think, my colleagues think there is. My colleagues think there's something called bipolar disorder. There's no such thing as those disorders. They're constructs. And I'm sitting there thinking, am I listening to a Scientologist talk? But in fact... <laughs> His agenda was to move back to biologically-based causative models of mental illness. And I can understand that drive, but the sad fact of the matter is they can't do it because they don't have a clear enough picture of where these conditions come from even today. Mm -hmm. So they're really stuck with descriptive psychiatry. Patients are stuck with it. It's the best they can come up with, the best we've got, and it's a problem. I'm Jonathan Meads, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You've brought us exactly to where I wanted to end up, and I guess I described the history of mental illness as one from sort of darkness to enlightenment, but of course, it's not really like that. We're always on a continuum, and mm. as you've just mentioned, even more so today, the fashion is for drug treatments, more and more yes. different types of drugs, and then also the DSM 
grows exponentially every new edition as people come up with new yes. conditions are pathologized, different just what seem to be actually quite normal human behaviors become new conditions, be that, you know, like yes. obsessive compulsive disorders or shyness or, you know school phobia yes, or and, yes a whole and, and things. So where things. are we now? What's what what do you think the state of the uh, the state of the art is now in, in psychology? Well it's it's very, very interesting. The drugs began to emerge, modern drug therapy began to emerge in the early 1950s with this first generation antipsychotics, what was called Logactyl here or Thorazine in the United States as trade names for chlorpromazine. And there were a whole lot of copycat drugs and then of course subsequently so-called minor tranquilizers, Biltown and then Valium and the like, and then antidepressants of various classes of antidepressants, most notably in the 1990s, Prozac and its descendants, the so-called SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And those were associated with a model of mental disorder as rooted in neurotransmitters in the chemical soup in the brain. And mental illness was finally shown to be a disease like any other and a disease that was treatable with these things. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, the serotonin hypothesis, for example, is scientifically exploded by now. There are antidepressants that work by lowering serotonin levels and antidepressants that work by raising them. And there's growing evidence that that is not what it was cracked up to be. It's not not the cause of things. The other thing is that the drugs aren't a free lunch. All the various classes of psychiatric drugs turn out to have important side effects, sometimes fatal side effects, sometimes grossly stigmatizing side effects, sometimes side effects that uneducated lay people see as signs of madness Mm. when they're really iatrogenic, that is, doctor-caused consequences of the treatment. Moreover, none of these drugs are psychiatric penicillin in in the sense that if you get penicillin for a bacterial infection or one of the analogous antibiotics, it cures you. The disease goes away. These are drugs that, at best, are symptomatic treatments. They relieve some symptoms. In schizophrenia, they relieve what are called the positive symptoms, the the more florid symptoms, the ones that are most disturbing to outsiders. They don't tend to relieve the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, and they don't abolish the underlying disease. Moreover, a significant fraction of patients don't respond to these drugs, be they antidepressants or be they antipsychotic drugs. So for those patients, all that's left are the negative effects and none of the positive ones. So it's a tricky story, the drugs. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Scientologist, good Lord, no. And I'm not a technological Luddite. And I think for some fraction of the patients, these things have been something of a boon. They allow some semblance of normal existence to be resumed, in some cases almost almost relieve the major symptoms and the side effects for those patients may be tolerable for other patients it's a more much more mixed picture and it's very hard to weigh the pluses and the minuses and then there are a group of patients for whom they're unambiguously a disaster and the profession for a long time shut its eyes to this they developed latterly a new class of antipsychotic drugs they called second generation antipsychotics they really aren't a unified class of drugs anyway Uh, Many of them weren't novel, they weren't new, and it turns out not only do most of them not avoid problems like tardive dyskinesia, erratic movements of the facial muscles and the tongue and, and the extremities that 
seen as bad by people, but they come with their own catalogue of additional side effects. So they produce massive weight gain, 20, 40, 60, 80 kilos of additional weight. And inevitably, in the wake of that, heart disease, diabetes, type 2, premature death. So it's not simply a product of drug treatment. It's partly the product of the increasing neglect of the mentally ill that's masqueraded as community care. But if you look at life expectancy among the mentally ill over the last 25 years, it's been dropping. And I can't think of a... It's not purely psychiatry's fault, but it's not testimony to the efficacy of the profession when that's happening. We really have got a crisis. Our public policy towards mental illness is a mess. Our treatments are at best palliative and very often not even that. And from what I'm hearing, drug companies are starting to pull back from research in this area. And that's an additional concern because it means the chances of developing better drug treatments are diminishing. I've been talking to Andrew Skull. We've been talking about his book, Madness in Civilization: A Cultural History of Insanity, from the Bible to Freud and from the madhouse to modern medicine. So, Andrew, it's been wonderful talking to you about it. Thank you. Thank you ever so much, Neil. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.